I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone. Um... Welcome to this London Review Bookshop event. Um, I'm John Lanchester. I'm talking to Patricia Lockwood. Um, and this is the first event in the history of the world in which a contributing editor of the LRB, whose father is a priest, is being interviewed by a contributing editor of the LRB whose mother was a nun. Uh, so that's an all-time Guinness Book of Records style event there. Um, so this is the bit where the interviewer says that someone needs no introduction and then provides an introduction. So uh, Patricia Lockwood, as LRB readers will know, is a star contributor of the LRB, um, author of these uh, wonderfully electric, lightning-struck pieces about uh, Updike, Nabokov, and most recently, um, a heroine of hers and a heroine of mine, Elena Ferrante, and uh, also the author of um, four books, um, uh, the second book of poems, Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland Sexuals, was a huge hit in 2014, chosen by many people, one of their books of the year, including by me. Um, her memoir, Priest Study, uh, in 2017, chosen by many people as one of their books of the year, including me. And uh, her new book is a novel, uh, No One Is Talking About This, um, which will be chosen as one of my books of the year for 2021, if anyone asks me. Um, so it's a real thrill to have you here, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you very much. Indeed, thank, thank you for you. joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I did, did I know that about your mom being a nun? Did we talk about that when we were on the podcast before? Uh, I don't think we did, no. You kept it, it a just, secret from me for all these years? Well, I did. I, it's an odd thing. I wrote a book, a kind of family memoir called Family Romance. Okay, but you could have called it, you could have called it Nun Mummy. I could have done instead. that. God you could have damn, done that. now you tell yeah. me. Yeah, you, could, you can do a second one. Maybe I'll reissue it. Yeah, I think you should, yeah. As nun mummy, uh, yeah. So I didn't know that American about you. Nun mummy, yeah. No, it's a weird, it's a weird thing we have in common. Um, so I wanted to start by um, checking in, really, see how you've been. There, I, one of the odd things about this moment is that everyone alive on the planet now has this one huge thing in common, which is we've all lived and are living through this this pandemic. So I wonder how you know how how's it been for you? Yeah, it is kind of this overwhelming thought, single thought in everyone's mind, right? Um, yeah, so a lot of people have been asking me about this in the interviews, which is funny, because when I started doing the interviews, I was okay. 
and then uh, insurrectionists tried to overthrow the American government. And that was quite stressful for me. Um, I don't know if that's, that's if that's relatable to you or if that's something you can imagine. But I found that quite stressful and I basically like stopped sleeping, eating, doing anything like that. And I had like this tremendous COVID relapse. Um, so I had it last March and I wrote about it for the LRB uh, in a piece that's quite insane to go back and read now. Because you're like, how? first of all, I can't believe I went through that. But second of all, like, how did I write this piece about it? I would be sitting outside on a park bench wearing these like cyber hacker gloves, um, just like typing madly on my laptop. And my head was shaved because I was crazy at that time. Uh, and it was like a beautiful picture to see. And I was just like writing this COVID diary for the LRB because I was very, very worried about not getting in my four pieces a year. I was like, Shit, I am a contributing editor now. I owe them four pieces a year. I better sit outside on the bench in my hacker gloves with my shaved head and bang this one out. And as that implies, um, you've you've kept working because I, I I find I'm often asked you know, as a writer, everything must be basically the same. And actually, me, I found it weird the extent to which I found it difficult to write, it's, difficult to concentrate. It's impossible, actually. It's very very difficult. Um, and I thought that that was just because of the COVID, but I don't think that it is. Uh, everyone I've been talking to has forgotten how to read. So I'm like, well, that's a relief that it wasn't just me. And I'm like, because, you know, it, it is kind of my job. It's your job to be able to read and write. So if we suddenly can't do that, it is kind of an issue for us. Um, but you, you but you still push through it, right? Like you're you're able to, to do it in the end. Because I, I tend to work to a word count when I'm when I'm writing. Um, and I, I, I have half the word count, um, you know, so uh, there's just sort of a part of my bandwidth is just going, yeah. I don't know where it's going, but it's not, you know, um, so on a day when I would have been doing a thousand words, I now do 500 and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm fully cooked. That's all I can do. And yeah, I've same. never had that experience before, just somehow the external yeah. world squeezing. Yeah, no, it is the single thought. So you're devoting your bandwidth to that. I think that the Ferrante piece was the first one that felt normal to me. Um, so I wrote the COVID diary. I wrote the Nabokov and that, if you can imagine a more difficult writer to be working on when you're in lockdown and you're dealing with like neurological effects of like a new bat illness, like there is no more difficult person pretty much to be doing a deep dive on uh, than Nabokov. And I was looking at I was looking at things like Ben Sinister and I'm like, fuck you, dude, just like get the hell out of here. I'm not reading this. You're crossing the bridge, whatever. Get out. So it might have affected that piece in some way. But by the time I got to the Ferrante, um, I did feel like myself again. And like I was just in that mood to be reading her and like she was a companion uh, throughout all these things. Because, you know, she she writes about all of this, like Italy has been through this with Berlusconi and reading Frantimalia, it, she talks about all of these things and she was a wonderful companion throughout the American election. And everything that happened after that, it was just very, she was the right person to be working on at that time. And does it feel like things have shifted in America in terms of, you know, the? The figure you call the dictator in the book, having having gone, is there is there a are we now living in the after? It feels like the after, and part of it is just because that voice, that megaphone, has been removed from that place where we're all living. So, very selfishly, I was like, well, I'm glad he's gone, not just for all of the very crucial reasons, but just because who would want to read this book if he was still installed there, right? So there is this sense that that you are reading it from some distance and looking back on a period. Now, it's not 
necessarily true, of course, because all these policies continue. And he was some sort of like logical endpoint of, of the American suicidal fantasy, right? So, so that's what he was. But if he were still the president, no, I don't know that people would want to read this fucking book, right? Like, that's depressing as hell. Like, I wouldn't want to read it and like, read more about this guy. But I did feel justified because, you know, there, there has been a narrative or there's been a discourse about the use of words like, like dictator for people like Trump and that it was hyperbolic or that it was hysterical. And it's like, no, the dude really tried to fucking overthrow the American government. You do get to call him that now. So I feel very vindicated in that choice. Yes. I hadn't thought about that, of course, that you're calling them di the dictator and, you know, the reality has... Uh, Boom. <laughs> yes. Yeah, deal with it. Mic drop. Um, <laughs> you, the thing in the book you call the portal, which, you know, Better. The portal's a much better name for it now. I bet that like, you okay. just renamed my memoir. I bet Jack Dorsey's kicking himself. So, God damn it. If he can kick um, himself while doing lotus position on top of a mountain with his beard no. down to his tits, subsisting on 250 calories a day, yes. Yeah, and doing a, a, a really quite remarkable Rasputin impression with the beard. Absolutely remarkable. One of the all-time all top 10 Rasputins. Yeah, and when we get to the end, it's like, will will he be able to die? Will his body, like, you know, will we have to, like, put him in the, the freezing river and do all those other things to him? I won't say explicitly what we did to Rasputin, because it might invoke, um, yeah, some, some surveillance on, on their part. But, like, is that going to happen for him? Like, is his body ever going to die? Yeah, no, good point. But would uh, no Twitter, no Trump? Do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's 100% a set of stairs he climbed to the top of America and the top of the world. And does that change your sense of what Twitter is? Yeah, and I think it's why it became clear that it was something you could write about in the form of a novel, that it was something you could enshrine. In other words, it became important as something to look at. Uh, previously, if you had done an internet novel of this kind, it would have been seen, I think, as frivolous. But Donald Trump or the dictator had taken up residence in the top of Twitter as, as in basically a gold hotel. Um, and his voice was being pumped through every floor below him. Um, and, and that's just how it was. It was how it felt for, for the entirety of that four years. And to have him suddenly removed is just the strangest feeling. It's like being in a bombed out building. Like it's just plucked out, but so much of the discourse was arranged around what he said. Uh, so much of what you saw immediately as you went into the portal was a quote tweet of whatever he had posted that morning while watching Fox and Friends. So it's just this, this cratered area where you're stepping around uh, the absence of this voice that had been just everywhere for the last four years. The portal, broadly speaking, Twitter's a, what the first half of the book is. The foreigners learning English always say that English is a language of prepositions. So Twitter is what the novel, the first half of the novel is. What's the right preposition? About, around, from? In. Through, in. Um, and I wonder if you could give us a, a short short reading to give us a flavor of that first first part. I can, yeah. I'll just read from the beginning, actually. And I think they're doing landscaping outside, so please enjoy. It's like the sound of a buzz saw in the background, so please enjoy that, everyone. She opened the portal, and the mine met her more than halfway. Inside, it was tropical and snowing, and the first flake of the blizzard of everything landed on her tongue and melted. Close-ups of nail art, a pebble from outer space, 
a tarantula's compound eyes, a storm like canned peaches on the surface of Jupiter, Van Gogh's the potato eaters, a chihuahua perched on a man's erection, a garage door spray-painted with the words, stop, don't email my wife. Why did the portal feel so private when you only entered it when you needed to be everywhere? She felt along the solid green marble of the day for the hairline crack that might let her out. This could not be forced. Outside, the air hung swagged and the clouds sat in piles of couch stuffing. And in the south of the sky, there was a tender spot where a rainbow wanted to happen. Then three sips of coffee and a window opened. I'm convinced the world is getting too full, LOL, her brother texted her the one who obliterated himself at the end of every day with a personal comment named Fireball. Capitalism. It was important to hate it, even though it was how you got money. Slowly, slowly, she found herself moving toward a position so philosophical even Jesus couldn't have held it, that she must hate capitalism while at the same time loving film montages set in department stores. I've never read that part out loud. That is like a fucking mouthful, and I just apologize to the world for that one. Politics. The trouble was that they had a dictator now, which, according to some people, white, they had never had before. And according to other people, everyone else, they had only ever been having constantly since the beginning of the world. Her stupidity panicked her, as well as the way her voice now sounded when she talked to people who hadn't stopped being stupid yet. The problem was that the dictator was very funny, which had maybe always been true of all dictators. Absurdism, she thought. Suddenly all those Russian novels where a man turns into a teaspoonful of blackberry jam at a country house began to make sense. What had the beautiful thought been, the bright profundity she had roused herself to write down? She opened her notebook with the sense of anticipation she always felt on such occasions. Perhaps this would finally be it, the one they would chisel on her gravestone. It read... Chuck E. Cheese can munch a hole in my you-know-what. After you died, she thought as she carefully washed her legs under the fine needles of water, for she had recently learned that some people didn't. You would see a little pie chart that told you how much of your life had been spent in the shower arguing with people you had never met. Oh, but like that was somehow less worthy than spending your time carefully monitoring the thickness of beaver houses for signs of the severity of the coming winter? Things that were always there. The sun, her body, and the barest riffling at the roots of her hair. And almost music in the air, unarranged and primary and swirling, like yarns laid out in their colors waiting. The theme song of a childhood show where mannequins came to life at night in a department store. Anonymous History Channel footage of gray millions on the march. Shark-snouted airplanes. Silk deployments of missiles mushroom clouds. An episode of True Life about a girl who liked to oil herself up, get into a pot with assorted vegetables, and pretend the cannibals were going to eat her, sexually. The almost formed unthought, is there a bug on me? A great shame about all of it. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, no, I had never done that that one little bit. And you never know. And then you start to read it out loud and you're like, well, fuck me. Why did I do it that way? Well, I don't think anyone listening to it was thinking that. So there are writers who use Twitter in all sorts of different ways, often for marketing, contacting, networking, blah, blah, blah. But 
uh, I think if he's the only writer I know who Twitter has maybe affected your sentences that you've that you learnt a, a kind of mastery, particularly of tone. I think, and yeah. there are many examples of that of kind of particular kind of um, dazzling, the like the details that are like rocket flares, um, often with a a sense of disconnection and surrealism and a kind of a poetry in the randomness of the detail. And I wonder if, if um, you know, I, I tend to think um, that it takes more from people than it gives a lot of the time. But is it, would it fair to say that that's not, that's not felt true in your case? No, I think that for me, it was a very creatively productive space for a long time. And I think it's because it didn't work backwards. It wasn't like I had books come out and I was told that I needed to be on there so that I could promote them. And I think a lot of times publishing houses are telling people that they need to be on Twitter and they need to be on Facebook. And that's awful. Don't do that for that reason. Like it's, it's, yeah. So I was on it in 2011, um, in May of 2011, I signed up. And yeah, it, it was just, it felt like a, an excellent fit for me. It felt cozy. When I write, I feel like I'm out in space. I feel like completely unlimited, but I also feel like I'm locked up in a closet and like I'm being held very tightly. And I like to work in forms that hold me very tightly, but that also feel very free. And I think that that was true of Twitter, that the, the white box and the more limited character count, because now it's expanded and you can have a whole paragraph, which is fucked up and not okay. But when you had that very limited character count, that constraint was very productive for me um, because I love constraints in that sense. I'm a poet, like that's just how that works for me. So yeah, I, I think that that was true. I think also those were the kind of sentences I had already been making in my life and they just seemed to fit there really well. The corollary risk though, is the thing about the world, all the world being in your head all the time. There's this amazing, I think sometimes I think it's the best sentence in the whole of English literature. It's in, in Middlemarch and George Eliot um, is talking about a sort of consciousness and she says, if we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. Is that the problem of the internet, the thing that you're writing about? It, we're we're living in the roar that lies on the other side of silence and we have to work out ways of work out ways of being human. I think it's exactly right. I think that that you are not just hearing the grass grow, you're hearing people's hair grow. You're hearing their fingernails grow. You're hearing the cells inside them turn over and you're hearing their thoughts. But I am smiling because if my protagonist had had recourse to quotation, she would have quoted that most beautiful sentence in English literature, which I was thinking of all the time. Um, yeah, and it feels that way and it becomes a clamor, I think, or it, it became a clamor over the past four years. There's, there's a sense of growth that is very good, that feels very fertile, like you, you are down in the soil and things are growing around you. And that's lovely. Then you feel a part of something that is, that is moving toward the sun. Uh, and that's, that's not what it feels like when it simply becomes a noise. And, and I think that that is how we got to the point where it felt like a kind of collective insanity. Uh, it was just these, these multiplications of the sound. It's these echoes and re-echoes. And it wasn't just a, a single voice coming out of a single mouth. It was compounded and compounded and compounded in the way the eye of the portal is compounded. It was also a compounded sound. And there's a very frightening thing in the book. Um, 
I wonder if it's the sort of paradox about the thing that, um, you know, the, one of the remarkable things about all your work is this thing about complete control of tone. You know, um, you have this extraordinary way of you have somehow earned permission to say anything, mm -hmm. um, partly through this absolute control of tone and nuance, and, and the comedy of it is incredibly precisely calibrated. It's very difficult to, it's like someone like Drill, you know, those geniuses of internet humour where the whole, it's very hard to describe why it's yeah. funny. And there's a thing in your book about sneezing being spelt wrong with an A, um, which is the kind of thing that's impossible to describe why that sort of thing catches on on the net. And just it is funny if you get the joke. But yeah. that's an individual thing about tone. And at the same time, the kind of risk of the internet is that the whole world is in your head. And there's this terrifying thing um, when you, you, you talk about um, about about your mind, about the, the protagonist talks about her mind, saying it had also been the place where you sounded like yourself. Gradually, it had become the place where we sounded like each other through some erosion of wind or water on a self not nearly as firm as stone. Um, I found that a very disturbing, very frightening and very believable idea, the idea that our selfhoods are slightly being eroded by by just the the impossibility of drowning, you know, the, the difficulty of listening to your own inner monologue when the world is talking to you all the time. Yeah, well, I will begin with that control of tone because that is what we're doing. The people who are most successful there are people who exert such control of their tone that it almost doesn't allow anything else in. And it becomes what I would say is ungenerous because you are completely protecting yourself. It is your joke. It belongs to you. Um, so I wanted to show that in the first half of the book. It's it's almost at times hostile. It, you're correct. It is very controlled. It's very calibrated. Uh, and things like sneezing and spelling it with an A, I'll try to read that part out loud. And it doesn't make sense anymore because it has to be textual. It has to be experienced visually. But yes, so it is an iron grip on our own words. Um, and those are the people who are the funniest. Those are the people who are the most successful in that place. But yeah, it's... I think what I noticed early on is that it was easy to drop a single word or a single idea or a single subject into the portal and watch the rings spread. That you could tweet a word and you would see that word in other people's mouths and it happened quickly and it spread far. Or you could invent a joke form and see people adopting it. And something like that is wonderful at first, but eventually it goes very far from you and you have no control over that anymore. And for these freaks like me who are gripping these jokes so tightly, that does feel very unfree. So it, it, it is creative. At the beginning, I think, to meld our voices in this way it can be very exhilarating. Um, and it's wonderful, I think, to shout together as people. And at times that is what we're doing. You shout or you sing and you kind of lose yourself in that, and that is wonderful. But after a time, you do think, I'm trying to announce something about my own life. I'm trying to talk about my own life or, or say something that is important to me. And the words that are coming to me are a pre-received form, a pre-received verbal, verbal form from this place that exists in my mind that I'm putting there again. And what happens in the novel is that question about control and tone and the thing about the language that's not necessarily your language because you know we're all stuck on transmit and receive and you know we're kind of um open to everything um it, it hits tragedy and and grief and loss and reality and there's a very profound 
shift in the book. I, I wonder if you had a passage where you, to read from to yes. give a feeling of the, the kind of the turn that happens in the novel. Yes, absolutely. She remembered the peculiar onrushing pain of the portal where everything was happening except for this. But for now, the previous unshakable conviction that someone else was writing the inside of her head was gone. All the worries about what a mind was fell away as soon as the baby was placed in her arms. A mind was merely something trying to make it in the world. The baby, like a soft pink machete, swung and chopped her way through the living leaves. A path was a path was a path was a path. A path was a person and a path was a mind. Walk, chop, walk, chop. How she wished she had never read that article about octopus intelligence. Because now every time she sliced into a charred tentacle among blameless new potatoes, she thought to herself, I am eating a mind. I am eating a mind. I am eating a fine grasp of the subject at hand. When the baby was put to the breast for the first time, she hovered behind her sister's shoulder to document it, with her phone sealed in a disinfected Ziploc so that all the photos she took appeared to take place in heaven. Her sister's neck from the side had the smooth, poured texture of a birdbath, rising and rising. The winged thing, pink blink, blurred cardinal, lit on her surface and drank. She herself was named Godmother, a word she could never hear without seeing a wand turning things into other things. A tap on the forehead, always on the forehead, and then the bursting of mousy outlines into static, wide white, the wide sky. So good, the nurses crooned when they saw the baby in her scratchy white baptismal gown with a broad chuckle in her eye at their earnest little human ceremony. She flooded with triumph as the priest poured water from his chipped seashell, because here at last was a child religion could not frighten. Here was a child who could not be made to dread the afterlife. She found herself so excited by the baby that she could hardly stand it. Oh, she was doing so well. She was stupendous. In every reaching cell of her, she was a genius just like the man with the basketball whose body always knew what to do. Her eyes traveled and traveled, though she could not see, would not be able to see. It was immediately clear. There were drops of wild dragon scale fluorescence where her irises ought to be. So, so what? That every person on earth might be watched in that way, given a party whenever she waved and raised her little arm, breathed like the rest of us, turned to hear a voice she knew, the news, the news. It was a marvel how cleanly and completely this lifted her out of the stream of regular life. She was a gleaming, sterilized instrument, flashing out at the precise moment of emergency. She chugged hot hospital coffee and then went, ah, like George Clooney on ER, like she was off to go slice out the tumor that had lately been pressing on the world's optic nerve. She wanted to stop people on the street and say, you know about this? You should know about this. No one is talking about this. And that's also the title of the book, John. There you go. It's like in a movie when they say the title, you got to be like, bam, there's the title. There it is. Yeah. So the narrator experiences something that she doesn't have a language for. She can't process with the, with the tool she has. Is there, I know, and you know, it's about grief and loss and 
and sadness and pain. But is there also a sort of sense that there's a kind of not um, the word that came to my mind when I was reading was liberation in it, in the sense of you know, the thing I thought was the whole world, which is the portal, actually turns out not to be. Is that, is yes. that fair? Yes. And part of the pain of the portal is that you don't know where to fucking look at any given time because everything is happening. But when something like this is happening, you have a focal point. You know exactly where you're supposed to be looking, what you're supposed to be doing, what your arms are supposed to be doing, what your legs are supposed to be doing and where you're supposed to be, which is the pain, the diffuse pain of the portal that we're all experiencing, that we're all spread over the earth like a miasma or a gas or something that we've allowed our bodies to spread in this way. And we don't know where to be and we're not concretely in our bodies and we don't know where to So, yeah, it's. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Free. Is it the case, though, you know, she, there's this sort of failure, and which is also liberation, and she comes up against the limits of language, the limits of what you can say. And, you know, I, I was interested by the thing you said that she doesn't have reference to quotation and reading. She's It's quite carefully done that her, she is trapped. She's within this sort of frame. But even if she didn't, is there, you know, and had access to, as it were, all the, you know, all the libraries of the world, is there a feeling that grief and loss and the things that life do to you, does do to all of us, take us to a place beyond language anyway? You know, the, the most painful thing maybe in all English literature is the line in King Lear. He just says, Never, 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 never. You know, it's um, the simplest iambic pentameter ever, but it's also the most devastating. And that's in a sense where tragedy takes you to a place beyond language. Is is that one of the things that was in your mind writing the book? Yeah, I, and I have thought of it, I think, as, as pre-verbal because we are talking about a baby. So maybe that is the easiest way to think about it. But it also feels beyond. There is a point in the second half where she is is talking about the fact that she can't put any of this in the portal, but she goes completely silent there. Because to put that sort of pain in the portal sometimes means that other people distance themselves from you, that you have that, that reek of pain, of blood on you, that other people have learned to move away from. Um, and and so you're, you're scrolling down this timeline and you're learning to avoid the people who are in pain. Uh, you know, the people who, in the more frivolous sense, she says the people who can't uh, apply their lipstick within the lines, the people who are horny, the people whose potato salads look disgusting. But above all, you have to avert your eyes from these people who are in mad grief, whose mouths are open like 
ancient caves with paintings inside, something like that, I should probably know. But it is, um, it goes all the way back that there is this, this just sort of like this gaping cry. Uh, and it's inside the body. I mean, as soon as you started to quote King Lear, like, like tears automatically rise into your eyes because yeah. there isn't a better way to say it than, than that line. Like uh, you're right that it is not surpassed, uh, that that is all that you can do. Um, and yeah, she didn't have recourse to that language, but the cry still belonged to her, right? So she is not writing about it, but I am writing about it. I'm watching her and I'm writing down every single thing that happens. Uh, and that's a compulsion as well. Like the cry is not just in us, but there also is this compulsion to record. I I, I, I can't read King Lear. I haven't read it for 30 years, you know, because once you accumulate losses in your own life, you know, the, this thing you think is an amazing piece of poetry, actually it's too, it's like looking it's at the It's too sun. real, it. yeah. It's too much, but, yeah. Which is oddly the other, all Shakespeare's other tragedies, I, I can read, but King Lear is just too, Yeah. it's the real, you know. One of the things that I'm struck by in your writing, and one of the things I love about it, I think all your readers love about it, right from the start, uh, and it's there in the first poem that blew up, went viral, was um, Rape Joke, and it's very strongly there in, in pre-study, is there's a tremendous amount of pain, but you never name it as pain. You, it, you're very, you know, it's not the same thing as the mastery of tone I was talking about, because that's many comic. There's a thing about being able to go to a place that should be unbearable, but you, it's sort of managed and controlled, and you convey a feeling that you don't directly describe, I suppose that's what I'm saying. So there's this, you know, pre-study is a very painful book, but it's full of jokes and you never say it's a painful story. I wondered if that's the thing you're conscious of, and it's a thing that, as it were, you're engaging with, because in, there's no way of avoiding it. No one is talking about this as an incredibly painful story. Is, is that a, a sort of thing that you're aware of as a trajectory in your work? Yeah, you're right about that. And I think that it's also true that there isn't anger in it. Like the anger, it's not explicitly named in the work either. And what I think it does uh, when I talk to people about this who have noticed this sort of thing is that it provokes anger in other people. So it's set down, like the story is set down in, in such a way that other people feel the anger for me. And I think it's slightly different with not naming it as pain. Part of that is that my body doesn't really give names to feelings. It never has. I never know when I'm hungry. I never know when I'm thirsty. I never know when I'm hot. I never know when I'm cold. Maybe I don't know when I'm in pain, but I can talk. Uh, my body might be consumed with, with this fire, with this feeling that I cannot name. And I can talk about the fire. I can set that down. But I think it's because to myself, it's I never knew what those things were. They did not come to me with names. It was just the caveman feeling. It was the the very beginning thing, the the before language thing that we're talking about here. Yeah, I have that trouble too with not knowing what I'm feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's what you know, Jonathan Rabin once said the thing writers write about the things that give them trouble. Um yeah. it's in an introduction to a book about the sea. So as as struck me as one of the kind of profound truths about writing, you know, the stuff you find easy and kind of transparency you don't you don't write about. So on that point of of, of anger, um it's had the question come in. Um, um, Monica has asked, um, she read the wing thing in the New Yorker, which is fo focused partly on abortion restrictions, how they were problematic, the pregnant sister. Can you tell us how you see abortion policy fitting 
in the US fitting within the larger context of the novel. And I'd like to kind of tack onto that something that I observed about the book, which is it's it, by by margin it's the most political thing you've written, isn't it? Because as well as this abstract pain and loss and grief, it's also specifically furious about the current politics around around all this. Yes. And in my own life, I was able to feel that anger. Like, I think that there is anger present in the second half of this book because the protagonist is feeling it on behalf of someone else. Um, and in my own life, I was feeling that on behalf of my sister. Perhaps the most political moment is when the sister who whose whole life is taken up in, in the caring for this 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 flowering child, this this blossoming child who was never even supposed to arrive, who wasn't ever supposed to come out and cry. Her whole life is taken up in this and she's writing a letter to her senator, you know, no, the talking, unbearable. Yeah. it's unbearable. And of course, the, the punchline, if you can call that, is that it it was never even sent. It was not sent uh, before her daughter passed away. But it was just sort of a, a an inchoate cry for for help. Like, can I need to bring the situation to your attention? Uh, can we do anything that will help not me, but the people who will eventually experience this? Um, so yeah, I was I was raised in the American pro-life movement, which I've written very explicitly about in pre-study. And even knowing all of those things, even having that background in my own life, I was not prepared for the level of restriction that my own sister experienced. Um, and it, it was absolutely intolerable to me. And I was able to feel it because it was outside myself. It was not happening to me, it was happening to her. Uh, so these restrictions were placed on her by the time we knew that there was something that had gone wrong. Uh, abortion was not even an option. Uh, she could have perhaps traveled to another state, but that would have been very dangerous for her. Uh, and I'm I'm speaking about my real life here because I, I think it's it's better to fix it in those details there. So so even me, like I, I followed this very very closely in the United States. I wasn't aware of the fact that it was like a felony to induce induce a woman uh, before you know a, like a certain number of weeks. I didn't know those things. And I think it's so important to say that you know my niece was a person. I believe that she was a person. I absolutely believe that it was my privilege to meet and care for her. And I also believe that my sister did not have a choice in that delivery room, whether she lived or died. She had absolutely no choice. And you don't come through a situation like this uh, thinking that, that women need to have more restrictions, you know, or that people who are pregnant need to have like more restrictions placed on them. For the most part, women are doing what they need to do. You know, people who are pregnant are, are taking all of these things into consideration. The politicians know nothing about their lives in almost every case. They're thinking about these theoretical situations. They're not thinking about these, these flesh and blood examples, these real things that could be happening in front of them. Uh, they, they simply don't see them. So yeah, I mean, if this book is more <laughs> uh, viscerally full of rage, that is why. It's, it's because it's a proxy event. You know, it's, it's not happening to me. I can feel anger on behalf of other people, uh, and I do. Yeah, uh, I must admit, I, um, you know, like most LRB readers, I suppose, I knew the kind of broad outlines of, of the increased restraints and restrictions on women's own bodies. But I, I was properly shocked by some of the detail, and particularly that thing about inducement. I mean, yeah, 
And when I was doing that piece for the New Yorker, they were looking for that, you know, because they fact checked very strenuously and they were like, we can't find, we can't find this law in the books. And I was like, this is what we were told. And actually, as I was doing this whole interview push, my sister was pregnant again. And it was true again, that she could not be induced before a certain date because of this law in the books in Ohio. So in America and in, um, in the US, it has taken place, the erosion of reproductive rights has taken place on like a state by state basis because Roe v. Wade is enshrined. We've been chipping away at it on the state level. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I have a question from one of the most prolific and uh, one of the greatest writers in all English literature, Anonymous. Hey, Anonymous. Um, in response to your observation about people scrolling past the horny, ugly, grieving, why do you think that superficial resonates so widely on Twitter, but more complex but commonplace feelings are uncomfortable? Why, why is being earnest so off-putting on the feed? Because it's vulnerable, I think. Um, I had the impulse when, when this was happening with my sister and my niece that, you know, once my niece was born, like I wanted people to see her. I, I wanted, I had this impulse to put her into the stream of things to put her into the portal. And I didn't do that because she was not my daughter. You know, she she was not mine and I didn't want to overstep my bounds. But when you think about doing something like that, you immediately have to leap to, you know, like what is it possible for people to say? Like what is what is the cruelest thing someone could say to me if I lay myself bare in this situation? Or if I, I show the world my beating heart? Um, it can be a cruel place, I think, and it is a, a place where we sharpen our knives and we sharpen our wits. And yeah, I, I think that we do sometimes go for the vulnerable. It's that same thing that I talk about where it's like you you keep an eye on, on the stragglers and you determine whether you need to make distance between yourself and that person because they are showing weakness. Tom Brown says what, one of her, his favorite passages is when it's stated that the husband always tells the protagonist she looks dead when she feels most alive. Do you feel there's an element of going through the motions with extremely online people after a point? I suppose that's Maybe. Such a, that a kind of hollowing out. Yeah, but this is true of me, and I think it means something a little bit different in my case, which is that when I go outside, I compose my face for consumption, right? I, I compose my face in order to be seen by people, to be in a sense devoured visually by people. And I'm always very conscious of that every mm. single moment. And when I'm by myself in my house, it just goes like this and it goes into mm. a state of rest. It feels much more like myself than what I do in public. Um, and it, it is sort of like a joke between us and probably I should have gotten like a ventriloquist dummy for this tour that I could like sit on my lap and like make talk when I'm talking about my protagonist instead of myself. Um, but yeah, it's just something where if I'm left my own devices, like I, I, I have no concern about arranging myself for consumption. And that is why a certain kind of person, a person like me, goes into the portal in the first place, because you feel, I don't know, um, more your essential self there sometimes. Right. So the portal isn't a version of having your mask on. It's a version of mask off. Yeah. Yeah, it feels that way when you first go in, but then yeah. I think yeah, as yeah, these, yeah. as it sort of like concretizes, as the forms become rigid, masks do appear. But there are these initial moments, you know, when there's when a new platform is adopted, when there's a new place where suddenly everyone's just moving, like moseying their way on there. 
those are places of tremendous freedom at those times. You Because yeah. the forms are not set yet, you can make them whatever you want and you go into those places and that is where you feel essentially yourself at times. And it never lasts. It lasts like six months or something like that. It, yeah. And it, it doesn't go on. But that's that's why we, we stay there. We stay there out of some affection for those those early firebrand days where we're deciding what it's going to look like. I was wondering about that because my um, my younger son's 18 and he, you know, Twitter, you know, Twitter's for old people as far as he's concerned. It you know, is now, yeah. Micro-generational thing. Hannah, Hannah Jay has asked, is, um, is archiving the internet diff so difficult? I don't know if people in the future will truly be able to understand how social media and the internet has mashed our brains and made us behave how we do. Do you think, I mean, the way she puts it is, do you think your book will make sense to people several years from now? I mean, I suppose the spin I'd put on that question is, is this is this going to turn into a historical novel? Yeah, I think it will at some point be entered as a document into the historical record, but any sort of uh, frivolous too much of its time set piece, that's what happens, right? It's discarded by the next generation because it's so much of its time, and then at some point it is entered into the historical record. And that is partly why I wrote it. I did think there was a panicked sense that no one will know how this feels. No one will know what the texture was. It wasn't so much no one will know the extent to which it's mashed our brains, but it was like no one is going to know what I do with my days and that is the impulse that that begins sometimes a creative work begins a novel now more practically when i was writing it i did discard things that it seemed like yeah in, in 100 years no one was going to know about this some sometimes with some of these pieces people aren't going to know about them in five minutes and there's a pleasure to that too right that they're so ephemeral that they disappear so quickly but i tried to choose things that were sort of centered around um concrete details so if you're if there's a, a part that's talking about like an op-ed about fancy ham or heinous substitutions in guacamole, there's a reality to that idea in itself that you don't necessarily need to know the reference. So going through, uh, yes, I tried to choose more things like that that could be grasped, that could be held in the hand. But the thing is that you don't know, like you, you have absolutely no idea what people of the future are going to make of your book, and that's included in the first part as well. You know, like like history decides, and we don't know what decision will be laid down. Yeah, so I, I had a party trick I used to do when I was when I was at sort of university age of that you could t pick people. I could tell people who were exactly my age, and it was whether they could remember the first time they'd seen a color TV. Okay. People who are a year younger than me, I was born in 1962, people who are a year younger than me, their tellies were colour the first time they saw them. And people who are a bit older, you just couldn't for whatever reason. There's a particular band. Do you feel that you're, you have a kind of micro-generational coding in terms of, you were born in 1982, so you have, your mind is being formed, your consciousness is being formed, you're reading, you're thinking before the internet. Is, yes. that, is that your kind of is that your watermark that you're old enough yes. old enough yes. to think holy fuck what's this new thing yeah so i told uh dan dan Quiz in the uh, slate interview i was like i'm from the perfect internet generation uh which means that yeah i was formed beforehand and i remember the moment that it came into my home and he asked whether it was when i was a teenager but it was just at that like it was like 12 or 13 it was that sort of perfect age for that to happen so 
So we had to learn it. We had to, to yeah. sort of uh, figure out a literacy that I think that people who are older and people who are younger don't necessarily have. We had to navigate the waters in a different way. But above all, we remember a time before um, you know, that in retrospect, it was like, I was like rolling around in baseball fields or whatever. And I'm like, oh, how free. But then I'm like, why the fuck would I be doing that? Like, why would I be rolling around in baseball fields when I could be online? So yeah, I do remember that, that moment beforehand. And I think that specifically marks people who are of my cohort. Do, do you remember that, um, the, the modem thing, you know, do, do we really... oh, yes, yes. I oh, wonder when that. I wonder yeah. when that went because like my my sons sons don't they don't know anything about that. So the eldest is twenty. Because it's such a specific sound. There's another yeah. thing that I find really interesting, which is like how quickly things like that go away. Like you do forget previous iterations of of like the Twitter homepage. You don't even remember what they look like because they're replaced with the subsequent one. But there are very sort of specific memories, sense memories of early computer stuff and, and the modem sound is definitely one of them. Like I won't forget that till the day I die. It could be like I'm in a coma and they could like raise me with that sound probably because it's like encoded at this point somewhere inside my body. So Simon, I suppose you've answered this. Simon O'Hagan is asking how, how does how do you think of life before the internet? You don't have a sense of a, a lossless Eden and then the internet came along. No, I mean, the baseball fields that I was rolling around in eventually gave a, a bunch of the kids at my school leukemia. So no, there's no like free paradise that I could go back to. But I also remember, I mean, I did have a very free childhood. I was very much outside, which you might not expect. I knew how to climb trees and stuff. You might not expect all of these things about me. All of that was true, but there was also this, this sense, this overwhelming sense at times that I did not know how to find out the information I needed. I would read about an artist. I would read about a painting. I wanted to see that painting. I did not know where to go in order to see that painting. There would be questions that itched you for years, like trivia questions, just little things about spelling or, or dates or just like just some sort of like trivial ephemera that you wouldn't find out for years and years and years because you couldn't go to the place where those questions were answered. So in a sense, the internet removed that panic from me. It did tell me where to go and it, it opened up a world of information, a world of images and a sort of, um, it, it opened up the archive really, like what we had saved, what we had saved of human civilization. And it opened up the world to be a writer as well, because I sometimes think that American, the world of American literature is more sort of class-based and, you know, where do you go to college, who do you know, than, than people think. The notion that, you know, yeah. Herowak hitches from one end of the America to the other, writes it up on his typewriter and, and suddenly all the doors open, that that actually, you know, that's not really how it works. No, no, it's not. And I think that it's like part of the, the way I'm written about and the way I'm written about or the, the way I'm treated as this like uh, sort of like novelty act or clown. Part of that is just because I'm like very like this. But part of it is because of that. It's so rare now for someone not to have gone to college who's like operating currently in the field of American letters that it is treated like you are treated as, as something of a, of a freak which doesn't seem like it should be true. It seems like there should you know, be more room for variety of experience. But it isn't just that. It's it's that like networks, I think, in America, because there's so much space, we're very dependent on those networks. So in a place like Ohio, 
um, I've discussed the, the phenomenon of Ohio Facebook, the poison groundwater of Ohio Facebook. And that's because it's so tightly clustered around those lines of acquaintanceship, like who people know, like that's how you get jobs. Uh, this is how things happen for you in your life. It's how you sort of uh, filter the world, like the information that you find out. You might become a conspiracy theorist because of someone you knew in high school, that kind of thing. So I think also because of just the, the vast space of America, there are these like knots of human connection uh, that we're reliant upon. Um, I've noticed American writers are more likely to hate each other, and I've sometimes thought that's a geographical thing that you know. Do you think so? Is a bigger because, but you know, all British writers have, you know. A, kind of in some profound sense the same and that's they less love true. each other british writers love no, each other <laughs> no but it's sort of more um huddled and you know lots of lots of things in british life are implicit and you know there's an old joke of martin amos's in in britain everyone was labor except the government you know mm, and that's, yeah. that's where everyone, well, that's new york though been, right like i don't yeah. know a single person who voted for nixon like that is the same thing. So a lot of times when we're talking about the world of American letters, we are talking about New York. Um, and yeah, that might just be a thing about like New York itself. It's uh, from what I hear, like culturally, it is kind of like a backbitey place. But yeah, I think that if you're born in another place and you dream about going there in this sort of like um, ideal of the literary party or the literary conversation that you're one day going to experience and you get there and you're like, oh no, no, this isn't what I wanted. This is not what I signed on for. I don't like this. I'm leaving the party. Yeah, that's that's I think a thing that happens too. Maybe it's out of a sense of disappointment that none of us are finding that conversation that we want, that ultimate party. Yeah, I think it's also a thing that the literature in its in its deep nature isn't social. It's it's, not. it's you know if you wanted to be a performer and you're if you're if the thing you most in your innermost being deeply depend on is in face person to person human connection, you you tend not to become a writer. You know exactly. It's like tortoises, they can only get so close. I mean, I assume they're fucking in some way, but a tortoise can only get so close to another tortoise because it's got that big thing on its back. And that's the word. They don't look like they're enjoying it. I mean, I've seen those. Oh, you've watched the, you do seem like a guy who's maybe late at night on YouTube. Like I will find out what tortoises do, how they reach No, I'm, I'm, super, I'm super vanilla. It's David Attenborough <laughs> only. No, it's BBC, I, it's just the mainstream stuff. I had for a while a part in the book that I really regretted losing that was about the protagonist is, you know, walking on the beach and she sees two hermit crabs just like going at it. Oh, forgive me. It's actually it's horseshoe crabs, the enormous ones that are prehistoric. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And yeah, they look very much like they partake of, of the dinosaur world. And she sees them fucking and she actually sees the larger uh, horseshoe crab like rear up off the other one and experience what is obviously like a horseshoe crab orgasm. And she thinks, how many people have seen this in real life? Um, you know, how many people have experienced this moment of seeing the one horseshoe crab like rear off the other one and clearly like reach the, the climax of pleasure. And of course she goes to YouTube to find videos of it, right? Yeah. And there are 5 million horseshoe crab fucking yeah, videos. Yeah, everybody's seen it apparently. Everybody knows how it goes down. <laughs> um, so uh, you've moved through, you know, Twitter poetry, memoir, fiction. Um, Giles is asking a question. Have you ever thought about doing a, a multimedia piece designed for online? He quotes John Boise 17776. Is that, are you thinking in terms of moving through the forms that way? I think I was never actually, I, it would have required some sense of construction, of online construction, which I think that probably John has and I do not. Um, so I admire things like that and I don't think in those terms. I, I'm very, 
old school. I'm quite traditionalist in my way that I do want like a big fucking piece of paper and like a quill pen really is what I would choose ideally if it were up to me. Uh, yeah, so I don't I don't think in that form. I wouldn't necessarily push my work in that direction. But I mean, it was as, as much as I could do to have a PowerPoint for the uh, British Museum lecture. I was like, damn, this is this is a lot for me. This is almost too multimedia. And the guy at the beginning was like, do you want to play some music? And I'm like, damn, how many things do we need going on at one time? Yeah. So maybe multimedia is not actually my thing. Maybe I'm I'm strictly vanilla in that sense. And David. Fair enough. Okay, and I think we've got time for one last question, which is from Tom Brown, and he says, can a dog be twins? This one, I believe, must um, uh, rest in the status of a Zen cone. I don't think that we can answer that one, although we do have a very beautiful image of it that my friend Stephanie did. Um, she painted for me, and it is just the poster of the Danny DeVito, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Twins, but she's replaced the actors' heads with dogs' heads, so... Yeah, I think that that's as close as I get to a true answer of the Canada Dog Twins question. You could, it did slightly bother me actually, and in fact, I deliberately haven't looked it up because I think that will take me to some. Oh, uh, do you want me to tell you the truth? Because I do know. I, I'm super curious. A set of dog twins was recently born. It was something like 2014 or something like that. Um, it, it's like quite recently in the last 10 years, there was dog twins. And then I wondered, what if that's something I saw? What if there was some brief impression? What if scrolling through the portal, I did see something about that news story? This, these dog twins that, that suddenly existed in the world, like what if that was the, the seed of that moment, of that idea, right? Yeah, it could happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that bombshell, as Alan Parker yes. would say, I have to say, th thanks very much, Trisha, for joining us. It's fantastic. Thank you, thanks John, everyone it was wonderful. Um, uh, this is a book which I unreservedly recommend. Thanks, Trisha, and good luck with the good luck with the virtual tour. Thank you, John. Thank um, you very much. See you in the after. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk/events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.